It's S in Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt and Keith. Brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt. Episode 20 of Saturday Night Live with host Diane Cannon. Originally aired on May 15th, 1976. Good day, everyone. It is Keith here, and uh, with me, as always, is Matt. Good evening, Matt. Good evening. Joining us for the first time, a wonderfully great friend of ours, our good buddy, Heather. How are you, Heather? Hello. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. We are in a great debt to you, and uh, as we talk about the episode, the uh, the listeners will know why. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, Diane Cannon. Are either of you familiar with Diane Cannon before uh, before this show? Because I really wasn't. Me? I wasn't. No. Mm-hmm. She looked vaguely familiar. Me either. Do not know Diane Cannon. Okay, well, Diane Cannon was a three-time Academy Award nominee. She was 40 here. And she wore many hats during her career. She debuted as an actor in 1960, made a lot of appearances on some TV shows, uh, seemed to be a lot of Westerns in there, and she did a little bit on stage as well. She was best known for being the wife of Cary Grant, who was about 35 years older than her. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, and they divorced in 1968. They had a daughter named Jennifer, who she refers to, and Jennifer grew up to be an actor. Now, Diane Cannon was is the second host to appear in the film Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. She was Alice and Elliot Gould, who hosted before and will host again, played Ted. Um, incidentally, we will get Bob in 1982 as Robert Culp, but we never get Carol. Natalie Wood, she'll never host the show. She later got a Golden Globe Award for uh, the film Good Friends. Um, now, in 1976, Cannon was in mid-hiatus from acting. She was actually, she'd gotten into producing, writing, directing, and editing, and she also uh, worked as a songwriter. But she got a nomination for Best Short Film in a movie called Number One, so she seems like an interesting woman. Wow, a lot more interesting than she came across in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to our cold open. So Chevy starts in a pile of furniture, and he gives the Live from New York line. So what happened was he'd fallen off a ladder while fixing a light, but the booth didn't catch this. So director Dave Wilson asks him over the house mic to do it again. Now the rest of the cast can't come out for the rest of the sketch. Chevy resets the table, um, resets the chair, climbs up the ladder, and falls, gives the live from New York. This fall could have been much more dangerous. This is the first time it seems like Chevy's being a little uh, protective of his fall. I thought this was okay, not great. I I wrote down in my notes, amusing. I thought the opening was okay. I I like that they keep trying to do different things with it uh, because it's... You know, it's it's tough to continue to come up with new things for him falling down. At, at least they're, uh, they're they don't seem to be completely exhausted yet. Mm-hmm. I was uh, so I was like, yeah, okay, I accept that. Props to Chevy for taking a ladder bump. Yeah, yeah. So we jump to the monologue. Diane Cannon comes out. She seems nervous. Now this is a character choice, not necessarily her. She wants to introduce herself to the crowd, and so she decides to sort of sing, kind of. She's joined by Paul Schaefer on piano and SNL bassist Bob Cranshaw. So Cannon gives some facts about herself, and she says that all of her dreams have come true, except one, and she keeps singing except one. She says it several times, and she lists a bunch of her accomplishments. But one thing that's never happened is she wants a man on a horse to come out of the ocean and woo her and sweep her off her feet. We start getting a lot of foreshadow shots, I guess, to Paul Schaefer's reaction as she talks about where this man is and where this man might be for her. Schaefer finally has enough or finally decides he's the man, jumps up from the piano and carries her off stage. A bemused Cranshaw standing alone on stage says maybe they'll be right back. This was okay. Uh, I liked the involvement of Paul Schaefer. Thought uh, Cranshaw was one of these situations where he couldn't act and it was obvious but he still had fun with it but as far as the monologue i found it long tedious and i didn't really like it yeah i wasn't really enjoying it it wasn't it just came across as kind of awkward 
not funny. I didn't really get where it was going. Foreshadowing, the joke does reappear several times, but I was still kind of like, eh, it just seemed a bit cheesy. The song was so annoying. I was sick of the song so fast. I did chuckle when they kept cutting to Paul Schaefer because it's Paul Schaefer, like yeah. Canadian Elton John looking nervous. And anyway, it was fine. I didn't, I didn't love it either. She's a babe though. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. You're absolutely right. She is a babe. I had never heard of her. So I watched this and I was like, okay, like, is she just a pretty face? It's going to be really kind of lame to watch. That, yeah. that was it, the it didn't... Welch episode, Heather. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> but... <laughs> we then go to a commercial. It's for sugar-free Zing. Chevy narrates a commercial where Lorraine as Elaine Zagetti is doing a blind taste test uh, comparing the taste of sugar-free Zing with phlegm. Elaine likes Zing, but not phlegm. And the captions underneath keep mentioning that Elaine is a real person and not an actor, and her reaction is real. Lorraine plays it up so much that there's no way her reaction is real. As far as the ads are concerned, I I didn't particularly like this one. It was awful. The only funny part was at the very end when they had Mm -hmm. the caption under the audience member who said, mentally undressing Chevy Chase. One of the worst commercial parodies, for sure. Lorraine tried to save it. She had good energy. And, you know, it's just, but it's just a really bad joke on those kinds of commercials. Not funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just feel like this was the beginning of what would be an episode full of dad jokes. Yeah, this, it's, it's so far, it's not hitting at all. No. Um, no, there's, there's no gotcha moment. Um, and then we go to the Chiron on the audience member, uh, as Heather mentioned, the woman in the audience who was mentally undressing Chevy. Uh, I, I'm not usually a fan of these Chirons, but I did actually, and maybe it's due to the weakness of the previous few segments, but I did actually chuckle at that one. Yeah. Chevy probably wrote it. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> Our next bit is called the hearing test. And this is where the boom mic is very much visible. Cannon plays a uh, hearing specialist and she's doing hearing tests with Morris, Radner and Curtin. And what she does basically asks them to put headphones on and to do a hearing test. And when they hear a sound to raise their hands left, if it's on the left side, right, if it's on the right side, the first few tones are are actual tones. And then we hear an alarm and uh, the subjects raise their hands. Belushi and Aykroyd come in dressed as burglars. Cannon hits another alarm. And uh, every time there's one of these sounds from the burglars or the assault or whatever, the uh, hands go up. The cops show up, start shooting their guns, and the uh, the subjects again raise their hands um, until they are shot. And then the burglars are shot and Cannon is shot. So uh, everyone is dead in this one. This was not funny. I tried to like it because a lot of people I like are in it, but this was not good. Yeah, I felt like it had potential. Like it was the first time that I was kind of like, okay, like this could be amusing. I just love watching Gilda. And I felt like... Her energy was there. But the rest mm-hmm. of it, again, it was just, yeah, it just fell short for me. I liked it a little bit more than you guys, for sure. I don't know. There's something strange about it. You know, they, they kept getting shot because of the gang violence outside. It was a little dark, too. And I, I yeah, wasn't always like, ha ha, funny. But I, I mean, as they continued to get shot, I was chuckling. Yeah. I liked this. You bring out a, an interesting point there, Heather. I, I actually, my eyes were pretty fixed on Gilda sitting there. Um, yeah, for sure. Which is not always the case. Um, I, I was sort of a victim of that uh, that magnetism she has, really for the f- not the first time, but uh, the first time where she was doing nothing super special, where I, she was the one that kind of got all my attention. Yeah. Uh, next up, we have the affair, and it's Chevy Chase playing a car wash employee who is canoodling with Diane Cannon on the couch. Her husband Dan Aykroyd comes in and uh, kind of wants to know what's going on. So Chevy fakes being dead. He's brought to life by mouth-to-mouth resuscitation from Cannon. Cannon and Chevy go down this road of inventing lies to uh, try to pull the wool over Aykroyd's eyes, and Aykroyd is pretty darn gullible. Chevy basically ends it by saying he's going around inoculating people for swine flu, and they convince Dan Aykroyd that he has it. Chevy goes out to the car to get his his, uh, medicine. And then Diane Cannon gaslights Dan Aykroyd by saying that there was no person there. The one thing I really liked in this, it's such a throwaway line. Dan Aykroyd said in a very Canadian accent, I hope you're okay. Um, 
wasn't I wasn't into it and the audience wasn't into it. I don't know if this was just an excuse for Cannon and Chevy to make out or what, but uh didn't do it for me. Same here. Ackroyd was amusing. For me, he kind of stole the the sketch. Diane Cannon was just kind of annoying. She's just not doing it for me in this episode. She's not really landing the laughs. It wasn't a funny sketch. No, not funny. Dan Ackroyd puts on a nice performance. Lots of energy. Just not a lot of jokes. I can't help but think that uh again, Chevy Chase is riding himself to be sliding up next to the star. <laughs> Our next bit is the Vacation Land Adventure. Jane Curtin, in her expertise role as a uh, public access television host, hosts a show called Vacation Land Adventure with Piotr Saluga, I believe, played by John Belushi, who is there to talk about vacationing in Bulgaria. So he brought two tapes with him, but unfor- uh, one for summer, one for winter. He unfortunately lost the summer video, but does have the winter video. It's called Bulgaria Dis Winter. Um, so it's people shoveling snow, carrying a cow, dancing, sledding sausages. These clips are obviously from well before the 70s. This bit, this whole sketch got one little laugh from me. Built a statue to honor their unknown soldier, Igor Gotha. I wasn't into it, and the audience really slept on this. I This was actually, and maybe this is a reflection of the episode as a whole, but this was the first time I that I was kind of laughing. Again, not the funniest I've ever seen on SNL, but... Belushi did make me laugh. I always loved Jane Curtin. His joke at the end was super lame, but then at the same time was amusing. I don't know. I didn't hate it. Like I said, it wasn't the most amazing thing I've ever seen SNL do, but it was the first time I laughed so far, and I I did enjoy Belushi in this one. Yeah, he was pretty bad. The accent wasn't working for me, uh, and he's usually good at it. Kind of caught me off guard that it was a little sloppy. I did really like the video footage, though. It was strange and absurd, and... He was really doing this, like, don't give a shit narration over it. And uh, I did laugh a bit. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't wasn't a great sketch, but I, I enjoyed the, the stock footage. Diane Cannon tries to introduce Leon Russell. Dan Aykroyd comes out and his voice is gravelly, and he starts to talk to Cannon about her opening monologue. She realizes that he's what he's trying to do, and she corrects him and says she's not looking for a man who is horse, but rather a man with a horse. And Aykroyd uh, gets the gets the point and leaves. And Cannon throws to uh, Leon and Mary Russell. Um, how did this little bit with Aykroyd go? This leads into sort of a, a series of segments about the uh, opening monologue. Somebody trying to fill Cannon's dreams. I thought Aykroyd was good here. I did like Aykroyd. This is when I first realized where this joke was going and that it was going to be like a dead horse that was beaten no pun intended on the horse <laughs> reference but i was uh, yeah i was kind of like okay here we go and to me again it was kind of a dad joke you know horse mm-hmm. horse i i mean i can just agree with you guys i thought dan Aykroyd was good here he uh he's really shining this episode actually everything he's in he's bringing it all canon does this laugh oh it's yeah. so annoying could you figure, I couldn't figure out, is it her character laughing or is that her just really enjoying being part of this show? It felt legit to me. That's what I thought too. I spent most of this episode thinking the same thing. Like, is this, a, like, it was almost like the jokes took her by surprise. Obviously it's a scripted show, so it wouldn't have, but to me it seemed genuine. It seemed like she was actually amused by the actors. Yeah, and completely breaking character, but yeah. I guess it's not so much breaking character in this context, but yeah. So now we go to uh, Leon and Mary Russell. Are you familiar with either of these two, Matt or uh, Heather? No, I'm not actually. I was not, no. So Leon Russell is a prolific singer and songwriter. Some of his songs are uh, Delta Lady, done most famously by Joe Cocker, A Song for You, done by the Carpenters, The Masquerade, done by the Carpenters and George Benson, and Superstar, done by the Carpenters and Raquel Welch in episode 18. Russell started playing in Oklahoma clubs as a teen, and he moved to L.A. and got a lot of work as a session musician with a lot of big names, and a few of them later employed him as a songwriter. His work was definitely best known for other people's versions of his stuff, and he released his first solo album in 1970. Now, Mary Russell is Leon's wife. They were married at this point in time. She was a member of the band Little Sister, which was uh, an an independent band, but also the backup singers for Sly and the Family Stone. Little Sister had a couple of songs that did well on the pop and R&B charts. And Mary left the group in 72 and eventually hooked up with Leon. 
In April of 76, they had released a self-produced album called The Wedding Album that went to number 34 on the charts. I actually knew about this album years and years ago because uh, I had a weird fascination when I was in my early teens with Gary Busey. And Gary Busey actually plays drums and provides hand claps on that album. And I actually, in the pre-internet days, tried to uh, tried to get a copy of this album. So that's the only thing I really knew about Leon Russell. So uh, their first song Gary was, Busey. It was that Gary Busey played <laughs> drums and hand claps. Yeah. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah, I used to collect Gary Busey's really bad movies. I tried to get his whole filmography, and all, that was a lot of renting and a lot of copying onto uh, homemade VHSs, many of which are still at my mother's house. And I'd say it's probably the only surviving copy of some of these films. First song they do is called Satisfy You. And I usually defer to Matt and the guest first, as they're typically more musical than I am. What did you think of this song, Matthew? I thought it was pretty fun, pretty upbeat. I'm not being familiar with these two. Uh, I was, you know, uh, overall, I don't really love the music this season, so I was pessimistic. But uh, it was good energy. I'm not going to go look it up tomorrow. But God, it had a saxophone solo. This worked for me. I had a good time. Yeah, I liked it. I liked the energy. I liked his bluesiness. It was comically very few lyrics in this song <laughs> it was pretty much just the same thing over and over again but yeah i was i i enjoyed them it was like matt said i i dug the energy can't go wrong with a saxophone solo i like the energy i really did it, 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 this seemed like a sitcom theme to me or something it was like half a verse and then three quarters of a chorus and then they just started yelling and screaming and, and it's, it's how it seemed to me it was like 30 seconds of song spread out over four minutes that being said, they were having a great time. The band and the backup singers were loving themselves, having a fantastic time. The energy was definitely there, but as far as a song, like I was definitely lost in the woods about this. I, I had no idea what was happening. I think I was just wanting to like something about this episode so bad. I love I love a bit of bluesiness. Mm-hmm. Bit of, you know, and I liked their sort of contrasting musical styles and yeah, I mean, the song itself was, I kind of enjoyed the, the beat and stuff. Again, the lack of lyrics and the repetitiveness was quite funny. Yeah. I, good, I, good live yeah. performance, I thought. And everybody looked like a cartoon character. I actually wrote here, song, thumbs down, performance, thumbs up is where yeah. I sort of wound up planting my flag, I think. Our next segment, uh, Lorraine and Gilda talk about next week when Buck Henry hosts. And Buck Henry uh, just kind of wanders on stage and joins them. And they don't really know. They see someone's there, but they don't notice it's him. They kind of brush him off. Lorraine says she finds Buck Henry disgusting. And she does her gross out noises from the slumber party sketch from episode 19. Buck interrupts them and says Gordon Lightfoot's going to be joining them. When they finally notice it's him, they're very nice to him. Um, I really like this segment. And I love the notion that Buck Henry's just this loser who nobody likes uh, and has nothing better to do than to just wander in the studio. I, I'm liking the in-show evolution of Buck Henry. Yeah, I thought it was kind of an interesting way of promoting the next episode. It was, you know, it was kind of like predictable humor. It wasn't anything super witty or super overly clever. Lorraine had me cracking up. And I think, uh, I think this is one of those moments where watching the show repeatedly rewards you this this felt like a joke for people that are familiar with the show yeah it helps i guess matt you and i were having we have seen the buck henry episode so it starts with chevy on the phone and he says no that's an old wives tale and he's checking his hands now i'm assuming we're talking about the old harry harry palms thing here and he says uh i'm chevy chase and that's the news good night and have a pleasant tomorrow just kidding and you're not is his intro and just to cover a couple of jokes from the first half, he mentioned that Jimmy Carter has 624 delegates, five more than he has teeth. They throw to Lorraine and Garrett, who do a bit on Howard Hughes's will. Garrett says he met Hughes in the desert, who was dying. Garrett lent him a quarter. Hughes said he'd leave everything to him. Garrett made his own copy of Hughes's will, but mixes him up with H.L. Hunt. Morris says he's just trying to make some money. Chevy gives an artist rendering of the weather with poorly drawn images. These are the same sort of images that we see used for the Patty Hearst trial. Chevy's having lots of fun with the camera goofs, and there's quite a few camera goofs here. For the first half of Weekend Update, anything jump out at you guys, Heather and Matt? I'm going to, this might be a controversial statement. Of all the years of SNL that I've watched, I've never been a big fan of the Weekend Update. 
I enjoy the guest stars and stuff that come on it. I generally find that the jokes are hit or miss on the weekend update. Maybe just because I don't enjoy the news in general, even in comedic form. But anyways, Mm -hmm. Chevy doesn't really do it for me. The Jimmy Carter joke did make me giggle. The Howard Hughes skit, it was okay. But yeah, I mean, it again, it's just kind of, it just all seems to be like uh, cheap jokes, you know, just like nothing real ever. Didn't entertain me that much. Yeah, weekend update's been a bit of a drag for me lately as well. Uh, speaking of somebody who generally enjoys the segment, and it could be just because of the, because maybe I'm personally weary of the dated topical humor, and it's just so much of it. That could be a thing, but you know, the, the jokes land few and far between for me lately. This was just pretty average, par for the course stuff. We now go to a commercial. Um, we see burning buildings and uh, what appears to be gorillas with guns. And it cuts to Anita Bryant, who is a singer, Florida girl, and a rampant anti-gay rights activist in the 70s. And she's in Beirut advertising Florida orange juice. This is a parody, a very well-done parody and a very well-done impression of similar ads that were playing at the time. Um, This is definitely pre-9-11, because Aykroyd and Belushi are playing terrorists who have her tied to an execution post, and uh, eventually there's some some shooting going on. This sketch um, is one that would never, ever, ever make air these days no um however uh I, I did watch some of these florida orange juice commercials and uh jane Curtin's anita bryant is pretty damn good and we will see that sketch we'll, we'll see that impression again later but uh this uh this commercial has a completely different feel nowadays holy shit talk about dark i mentioned the dark sketch before this was grim when they put that hood over and shot her i was like holy shit Uh, that caught me off guard yeah it was pretty dark i think this probably goes to show where my sense of humor lies because this was i wrote down in my notes finally i laugh um (laughs) i did find it funny the terrible like mock arabic accents and and like just like i said super offensive would never fly today they were super into it Jane Curtin always kills me with her, like, serious, stoic, like, she doesn't crack. What a strange thing to see through, you know, 2021 eyes. Definitely. That was kind of exactly what I thought. I was like, only in the 70s could you, like, get away with stuff like this. Yeah, it was a weird nexus for, like, what was able to be played. I can't say what was offensive and what was not. That's always a personal thing, I suppose. But what was able to get on the air? It's a strange time. Uh, Chevy then reads a news story about a fire while holding a paper that is burning. And uh, I think Chevy actually burns his hand in this one. Um, and then they show a, a quick picture of Mike Reeser, a golfer who had one, he has one leg raised and it says he uh, was uh, suspended or fined for relieving himself on the golf course. I like that one. And then the great dictator finally debuted in Spain after Franco's death. Um, it was banned because of uh, its depiction of Franco's good friend, Hitler. Hitler could not be reached for comment in Argentina, and Franco only watches underground movies. Chevy's running out of time, so he combines a story of a race, a horse race, and a beauty pageant. And then finally, the return of Garrett Morris as the headmaster of the School of the Heart of Hearing. One audience member yelps. Chevy announces that Garrett's coming. Audibly, oh, that was me. Yeah. Oh, that was <laughs> Matt. He went back in time. That's right. The second half of update was far better for me um, than the first half. A little bit better. I did find the Garrett Morris thing. I mean, again, offensive, but it did amuse me. It gave me a little chuckle. You know, the jokes weren't killing for me. Yeah, speaking of Garrett Morris, and I, I didn't. Uh, I'm. I have to excuse myself. I uh, must have slipped my mind when I meant was talking the first time. I thought his bit with Lorraine. Uh, was actually pretty funny. I think Lorraine has really uh, grown into this reporter character much more. Her voice is way better than when she started it. And I thought Garrett was hilarious with his fake will and bogus testament. And I forgot to bring it up. I love that. And I loved him here. Garrett Morris saved the segment for me on both ends. I would agree. That? I'd agree with that. How about that? Two seg- Two little bits and update. You don't see that very often. I was wondering if this episode was not going so well and they knew it and they said it's time to crack Garrett out because it's been about eight episodes since we've seen Garrett do uh, do this. You, I've not. Uh, they tried a few things after him and they just didn't work and then they kind of ditched the concept entirely. Glad it's back. Missed it. I laugh every time I see it. Our next bit, it's a funeral and Chevy plays a priest at a funeral who has the hiccups. The family, played by Diane Cannon, Dan Aykroyd, and Gilda Radner, try to cure him by doing things like scaring him, tapping him on the back, 
glass of water. Cannon kisses him. There's some screaming, some tickling. And there's a paper bag that won't bust. This was not good. I didn't like this. This this actually reminded me of something you might see on like the Smith and Smith comedy hour or something like that. I didn't hate this one. I did kind of laugh at it. I mean, it's that old, what if you get into a coughing fit or, uh, you know, the hiccups at the most inopportune time. All the efforts did make me laugh. Gilda cracked me up. Ackroyd was good in this. Now that I know Chevy's one of the writers, of course, Diane Cannon kissed him. But, and again, I liked Gilda. He always kind of steals it for me it just kept going and I, I just thought it was way too long and the concept is not exactly hysterical by any means uh pretty disappointing didn't dig it diane is about to introduce a movie garrett morris comes out dressed kind of as a pimp with gilda and lorraine who are dressed as two whores this was uh this actually got a lot of laughs from me this one um and fun performances by gilda and lorraine and garrett I had a chuckle at this one. Of all the the gags with her and the white horse, I think this one was probably the most amusing. Definitely the best of these. Pretty clever. Uh, I laughed too. And yeah, the ladies were great. To me, if she had said, I didn't say white whores, it would have killed the joke. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. 100%. We now go to a Gary Weiss film. And this is an interesting one. It cuts between a newlywed couple at Niagara Falls and two private eyes who make their money on... Uh, busting cheating couples this was okay this wasn't bad i like this this was better than weiss's last few still not his best the uh the private eyes end their segment introducing a stuffed dog yeah i really like that it didn't overstay its welcome as well and it brought back a little bit more of the not that they're not all absurd but this one was just strange and uh i found it interesting to watch not to Detective Private Eye guy was right out of an Al Pacino movie. I couldn't believe his facial hair. He was a sight. Uh, yeah, it was it was fun to watch. This was definitely an improvement. Yeah, I wasn't really digging this one. I wrote down that I was baffled. <laughs> At what point in the night I watched this, I don't know. But I, I don't know. It didn't really do it for me. I enjoyed that it was short. How many listeners do we have, Matt? thousands so if you're one of the thousands that know if this couple is still together please let us know just drop it in the comments uh, I, i'm it kind of it's just something that's going to play on my mind for a little while huh? and uh yeah I, I was just curious the films are always interesting like i totally understand of course why heather didn't find it funny so, they're so strange and they're just kind of dropped here late in the episodes and again i i feel like this is probably the kind of thing that rewards repeated viewing of the show to kind of see the progression of his films and not just this this random weirdness late in the episode. Yeah, they're always well-placed. Even the bad ones are well-placed in the episode. Our next sketch was written by Michael O'Donoghue, and it's called Celebrity Bathwater. And it features Diane Cannon as Cindy Cleavage, and she's in her bath. And Aykroyd pops up behind the bath. He's uh, promoting a bunch of bathwaters of the stars. And it's uh, basically when you get out of the t when celebrities get out of the tub, they can just fill up these little bottles and sell them through uh, Ackroyd's company. And there is a list of celebrity names crawling up in the background. This is a different version of Ackroyd's corporate chill. I don't like it as much as the other one. Well, Ackroyd drops a rat in the bath. Cannon laughs about it. Um, and this was a time where I wasn't sure for sure if she was breaking character or if it was like, a bad Goldie Hawn impression, or if she was just laughing in character. This wasn't great. I didn't, uh, there might be a reference. I didn't get it. Yeah, if there was anything going on here, I didn't get it. I just thought it was lame. It didn't make me laugh. Shit, I liked it a little more than you guys, that's for sure. I thought those two were pretty funny together, and, and I loved the idea of selling bathwater, which people do on social media now. There's a, there was that girl that sold her bathwater for like a hundred bucks a vial. I don't know, make it up that number or whatever it was. Uh, so it made me think of that. I don't know. And it was it was just weird. I found a lot of the sketches in this episode just kind of weird. Or, and they're a little more left field than usual, uh, which is, to be honest, what I want to see out of this late night comedy show. Then we have a Chiron caption on a woman in the audience who's looking for truth. Next up, we go to a, uh, it's a commercial setting. Chevy is... A Marine shooting a shooting a commercial for the Marine Corps. Um, he pronounces it corpse. Um, Ackroyd comes in and yells at him. And Ackroyd's obviously a drill instructor. Uh, Garrett Morris and Neil Levy are also dressed as Marines. And they hit him with uh, boxing gloves that are affixed to the edges of their rifles. The beatings make Chevy more nervous and less adept at doing the commercial. Ackroyd makes him repeat it several times. 
Um, this was completely flat for me. Didn't like it at all. Did like the boxing gloves at the end of the rifles, though. This was awful. That was my that was my notes. Awful. <laughs> I think at, by this point in the evening, I'm just losing the will to live slowly. And <laughs> this was where it all went downhill. I mean, not this not specifically where it all went downhill, but no, didn't like it. There are several complicated layers of hell, which is why we named the podcast SN Hell. Yes. Uh, after Dante's Inferno. This is pretty bad. It's almost a level unto itself. Jevy's looks miserable. I don't know. Just the whole sketch had bad vibes. It was like ugly humor. I didn't like it. Maybe Leon and Mary can save the day because the next segment is Leon and Mary Russell singing their song Daylight. Um, now, this was a song written by Bobby Womack, and he had a lot of success with it. Leon Russell apparently had absolutely no success with it. I actually preferred this song to the first one, but it still did nothing for me. I can't figure out what's missing. Um, and I've said this a million times. Like, I can see these guys as being talented, but it's not working for me. This act might be the strongest I've ever felt about this, because these guys are definitely, these folks are talented, but it's it's not hitting for me. Um, we do get Belushi coming in as Joe Cocker again. He does his thing. They stop. They give him a minute. And I know like Leon Russell collaborated with Joe Cocker, but this has been too much Joe Cocker over the last few episodes to the point that it's one of my favorite impressions uh, to date. And, and I'm losing patience with it. I tend to agree with you there. Although these guys in a lot of ways were the only saving grace for me of this episode. Short segment of time that I was actually entertained during this episode. Hmm. Belushi at the end why I just it just seemed arbitrary and stupid and I just kind of ruined it for me just more of the same for me music wise song wise and I don't like and I agree Keith with what you said about uh, the the Belushi impression kind of being an overkill but uh, and I also I don't like when the show is like in the musical performances you know what I mean I like when they're separate I didn't like the crossover yeah I agree with that our next bit is Johnny Angel Diane Cannon plays a teenager. Her parents are uh, Gilda and Belushi, and they're asking about her boyfriend, Johnny, who she keeps talking about. Johnny enters, and there's actually three guys named Johnny, and uh, they're Hell's Angels who tie up the parents and trash the place. As Diane Cannon sings Shelly Faber... For, I can never say that right. The the, the lady from Coach. Shelly Faberes, Faberes, her hit Johnny Angel. Uh, I hated this. I really did. I absolutely hated this. My notes say I'm losing the will to live. <laughs> I was, yeah, this was just, even Belushi couldn't save it for me, this one. Like, there was just nothing. Them being tied up, but also still kind of singing along to the song. Mm -hmm. And then her being gagged and carried off, which had like a weird kind of rapey vibe. But she was up for it. It was just all over the place and there wasn't a single moment that i laughed so there's something going on with the mood of this episode from the people people in the uh, hearing test getting shot and jane's execution now you got this thing with the, the hell's angels uh with that are kind of rapey and ho home invasion and that chevy bit where he's being demoralized it's just a lot of the sketches seem to have this really dark, nasty tone. That's what I started taking away. By the time I saw this, I was like, something's going on backstage this week. Somebody's unhappy as they're writing a lot of violence into the sketches. It's not working uh, comedy wise. There's been some violence this episode, some violent humor and uh, made it kind of interesting to watch in its own weird way. Based on what I know of the writing styles at play here, this one feels a lot like Michael O'Donohue's six sadistic writing and uh, Chevy Chase's I Want to Kiss Diane Cannon. Seems like there's a lot of that going on. Yeah. Chevy Grindhouse. Like it's, I get this 42nd Street Last House, Last House on the Left vibes from happening. <laughs> <laughs> Saturday Night Live's foray into Grindhouse. I, I do like that. That's, 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 every sketch has a that bit of that vibe to it. And I, You know what? I, I think that's why I like this episode a little more than you guys, because it has this weird, sleazy 70s grossness to it, mm. uh, which is an aesthetic that just appeals to me. A little bit of backstory on this one. A uh, couple of days after the episode aired, according to the Internet Movie Database, a couple of Hell's Angels actually showed up at the studio and they wanted to, quote unquote, discuss the situation. Dan Aykroyd, who was a motorbike enthusiast, befriended them and went to their clubhouse and hung out, and all was good. Random. Yeah. yeah. 
Our next sketch is Cresc Toothpaste. This is a parody of a Crest uh, advertising campaign that featured Mr. Goodwin, who was a friendly neighborhood shopkeep, and Belushi plays Mr. Goodwin. Gilda enters as a mother whose son passed away, and Belushi pushes toothpaste on her for her kid, even though he's already dead. Goodwin basically says he still needs good toothpaste. Gilda agrees and leaves the store crying. I really didn't like this at all. There's so many other ways they could have parodied this Mr. Goodwin, and they probably took the worst possible one. This was very uncomfortable for me. Yeah, I thought it was, I, you know what? Uh, it was pretty uncomfortable for me too, but when it gave me one of my laughs of the night when Belushi was like, what about his teeth? <laughs> and he just gave her this look. That cracked me up, but it wasn't a great sketch, but it did have, hang on, we're talking about a dead person. Just continuing the, the the weird darkness that I'm finding in uh, this episode. And I really liked that line. A dead kid was, I think if it had been her husband, I probably wouldn't have uh, been as uncomfortable. I don't know. I don't, I, I think they were going for some jugulars tonight. When he asks her, how's, how's the little fella? And she says dead. I was instantly like, where the hell is the punchline going to be in this one? Like, this is... <laughs> just think you know if it was a husband or something but and a school bus accident it was all just dark when snl kind of goes dark or lowbrow but it's funny it lands it's one thing this stuff yeah. is just yeah, morbid without well the laughs points they definitely yeah. do dark well and uh yeah it's not hitting me this time no what was up that week our next bit uh diane cannon comes out to introduce the home movie and John Belushi comes in driving his friend Horace, who's played by writer Alan Zweibel. She thanks them. Uh, it's okay. She explains the difference. But Belushi says all's good because it brought uh, him and Horace and Cannon closer together. Belushi <laughs> has a riding crop and he starts goofing off with it, I think. And uh, Zweibel's having the time of his life up there. Cannon throws to a, a home movie. Um, what was this? Had this segment work for, for you? Again, I, you know, I... This play on words, Horace, Horace, this kind of made me chuckle. Belushi was funny. The guy he was, who's, what's his name? Who was he was riding on? Alan Zweibel. He's one of the writers. Uh, so yeah, Zweibel was, he was funny and they were clearly enjoying themselves. Belushi was playing it up. Oh, I liked it. Yeah, me too. I liked him messing around with the riding crop. I thought that was pretty funny. I was getting a kick out of it and grabbing his face and pointing his uh, his steed toward the camera. Uh, it was it was fun. Yeah, I and incidentally, I just downloaded uh, Zweibel's book today, so uh, I'll, I'll report back on that one down the line. I've enjoyed his writing so far. He's uh, he's Gilda's writing partner, Heather, more or less. Oh, okay. Yeah, so a lot of Gilda stuff is uh, collaborated with 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 uh, with him. Our next bit is the home movie. It's called The Hubcap Thief. It's a short movie of a guy trying to steal hubcaps, and his hand gets caught in the caps and rolls down the road via some goofy stop and a stop motion animation and some dummy usage. I, I enjoyed this. It was fun. It had a very European feel. I didn't know if it was a bicycle thief rip thief ripoff type thing or not I, I don't know the timeline there it just didn't have an ending it just ended but i really like this this was fun it was amusing when the guy uh is asking him for directions that made me laugh and he just stops and gives the guy directions and yeah yeah this was a bit of a lower point for me i guess geez i'm just at odds with you two for most of this episode uh but i, I didn't think this was very good it was it was interesting to look at but i don't know the it wasn't weird enough for me it certainly wasn't funny enough for me and yeah, just kind of passed the time. I would have, I would have chose a different home movie based on submissions. This couldn't have been the best one they had. So finally, we are at the end of the show. Diane Cannon is there. She thanks everyone for coming, um, and she's surrounded by the the full cast except Chevy. She really thought her dream would come true tonight, but it didn't. But she had fun anyway. Then Chevy rides into the studio on a white horse, wearing just his uh, just his underwear. He goes up, he picks up Diane. She is absolutely losing her mind laughing. I, I assume she knew that what the ending was going to be, but maybe Chevy wasn't supposed to be in his drawers. I don't know. She jumps on the horse, and uh, they ride out of the studio. Dan Aykroyd then carries off Gilda Radner, and Belushi uh, piggybacks Garrett Morris off. And Jane and Lorraine are left standing there awkwardly until they just walk off. This is a point where I'm noticing the crew is getting bigger in the credits, the list. The uh, Saturday Night Live section of TVIV.org notes that this is the first live animal to appear on an episode of Saturday Night Live. 
as far as endings go, this was definitely a, uh, a spectacle, I suppose. It was the perfect ending to a crappy episode. It was predictable. We all knew that the episode was eventually going to end with this gag of the white horse. Of course it was Chevy Chase. All throughout this episode, Chevy mm-hmm. Chase is just trying to get with Diane Cannon. And it's getting kind of annoying at this point. I didn't like it. Of course it was Chevy Chase. Of course. Uh, <laughs> she I, she laughed for real. I'm convinced that she has been laughing for real uh, at various points throughout the episode. Um for, for whatever reason, like, I'm sure she knows the jokes are coming, but I don't know. She's getting a, a rise out of it, nevertheless. I mean, I thought, I guess I thought it was kind of fitting to end this way, however much I didn't love it personally. But goodness, Chevy finally taking her and riding off on, on his own steed. The star takes home the girl on his horse. Come on. Exactly. It was just too predictable for me. And he just looked too pleased with himself, you know, like. He always looks like that. I know. Like, I would just, if I was his castmates, I mean, I know, I know Chevy has his own history and, you know, wasn't always the most popular guy, but I would have just hated working with this guy. Like, (laughs) he writes himself into all the best stuff, you know, like gets to make out with the hot chick three times in one episode. Like, nah, it's, it's obnoxious. Stay tuned for season three when Chevy hosts and he meets Bill Murray backstage. Oh yeah. Heard about (laughs) that. Heard that one. <laughs> and uh, when he comes back in 85, there's some interesting things. And then again, when he comes back in, I think, 94, 95, there's some interesting things that happen. Knowing all we know now, this episode does not look so good on, on, on Chevy at all. No. <laughs> okay. Um, the epilogue. So the host, Diane Cannon, does not come back. <laughs> she continued writing, directing, and acting in films and, and writing music. She uh, acted in the, she appeared in the Revenge of the Pink Panther, Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag, She's Having a Baby, Out to Sea, and uh, a lot of other movies. But one movie I like to just randomly mention whenever I can is uh, Kangaroo Jack. She was in that as well. She went on to host The Muppet Show and uh, actually did a really good job on that episode. Um, Appeared in Caddyshack 2 and had a ton of TV gigs, including The Practice, Allie McBeal, where she was a semi-regular and a lot of things. Right now, she's 84 years old and uh, has w- at least one film in pre-production, and uh, she, she, she does not look 84. The musical guests. Uh, later in 1976, Leon Russell and Barbara Streisand wrote the song uh, Lost Inside of You for the, the Stars Born soundtrack. Russell eventually joined up with Willie Nelson for a tour, and they had a hit and uh, got, I think, a Grammy nomination for their version of Heartbreak Hotel. He later went on to open a studio that did audio recordings, but also uh, shot some music videos. Leon and Mary uh, released uh, Make Love to the Music in 1977. Now, Russell later released a few more solo albums. He's got a real unique sound style and uh, appearance that kind of allowed him to straddle a lot of genres. And a lot of people see him as as a mentor and an inspiration. And one person that really cited him as being a big, big uh, mentor, big inspiration was Elton John. And uh, Leon Russell actually comes back in 2011 and uh, and accompanies Elton John when he's the musical guest. Mary Russell, Mary McCreary Russell, and Leon divorced in 1980. And she's released some solo albums, one called Heart on Fire in 78, another one called Still Together in 2005, and Love and Praise in 2015. She, uh, As of this recording, she's still alive. She's somewhat active on social media, but I can't find too much else about her career after that period. Let's rate the music. Let's uh, give me your thoughts on the music. For me, it was an, it was a non-entity. I mean, they did well. It just wasn't for me at all. Um, I was actually more interested in watching their band and their backup singers who were really having a great time. Again, I recognize the talent, but this definitely isn't for me. Again, I think my standards were lowered by the rest of the episode. I was just wanting to enjoy something. Yeah, I think these guys are talented. I enjoyed their performance. I wasn't blown away. I'm not running out to buy the albums. But yeah, they were talented. They were fun. They were energetic. I enjoyed it. Pretty middle of the road for me. I've definitely disliked uh, music more this season, and I've certainly liked it more as well. Uh, It was fun, but non-entity is a good way to describe it. It was just kind of there. It didn't offend. It didn't overstay its welcome, but it was in and out, and it left no lasting impression with me. Um, So rating the host, um, Diane Cannon to me, okay, she seemed to enjoy herself, which I always kind of like. 
Um, definitely seemed to enjoy working with Chevy, or at least Chevy seemed to enjoy working with her. Her laughing was taking me out, and I really found myself wondering what she was doing. Is she enjoying herself a lot, or is this a character shtick? Or I don't, I couldn't figure out what was going on. But uh, either way, the thing is, though, I'm not faulting her for a lot of this episode's mistakes, as it seemed like it was weak or experimental writing. If she had had maybe more standard scripts she may have uh, may have done better um i will say things like johnny angel and the the bathwater thing that she did were just poorly executed but uh it really matt's mentioned it it seemed like there was something going on <laughs> backstage this week that was just strange yeah i'm kind of like you i don't fault her the great hosts are great hosts because i think they have some comedic chops you know they they have good timing they have whatever you always get these hosts who just, they're just there for their celebrity credibility or whatever. They're, you know, they kind of just fall short. She was one of those. She didn't seem to me to have a comedic bone in her body. The writing wasn't great. She didn't have a lot to work with. There's a fine line for sure about, uh, you know, a host being into it and just kind of enjoying themselves too much. And I definitely think she was enjoying herself too much. She was kind of laughing at the show while she was in it. And, uh, I mean, it's not like the jokes were there to support her otherwise. So sometimes I actually thought it, uh, it came, like in the bathtub scene, I thought it uh, added some levity to the sketch. And, uh, you know, when Chevy came out, that was a genuine laugh. So I didn't always hate it, but mm. I certainly always noticed it. And that's not necessarily a good thing. I, I don't think I disliked her as much as perhaps Heather did. Uh, but I, I do agree that, you know, she didn't bring a lot of comedy chops to the table, but they didn't give her a lot to do either. So, mm. yeah. so the worst of the night, this is uh, quite a, uh, <laughs> this is quite a field to, uh, to hoe. I'm going to say for me, the worst of the night was the Cresc toothpaste ad. It was really one of the rare times where I was uncomfortable watching a sketch for a long period of time. Totally get the parody. Bit much for me. I think the, Mar the Chevy Chase Marine Corps sketch. I just hated it. Agreeing with Heather on this one, that Chevy Chase Marine Corps sketch was bad. Uh, it was too long. It was uncomfortable. Uh, I didn't like it. It had it was ugly comedy. So bad I forgot about that one. But I think I'll still go with Kresk. <laughs> the best bit of the night. For me, I only laughed a few times this episode. When it came right down to it, for me, it came down to Garrett coming out with the White Whores and the Buck Henry segment. But I went with Garrett because I love the wordplay. And I really liked what Gilda and Lorraine did in the sketch. And uh, I liked the fact that they uh, they left it vague and didn't say what it was. Yeah, I got kind of a tie to... I did like that one. The White Horse was pretty good. For me, probably the Anita Bryant one. I did oddly like that. It, ma <laughs> it made me laugh. I guess I just like offensive humor. Well, no. And plus, I mean, Anita Bryant was the face of anti-gay rights of the 70s so mm -hmm. there, there are a lot of people that enjoyed seeing her get shot in that sketch my favorite was lorraine and garrett in their weekend update remote segment when he had that horrible will and it was he was trying to pawn it off as legit and lorraine wasn't having any of it uh, i thought they were both great in it so the star of the night slim pickens here i actually went with garrett i think he did the the white horse thing funny the hard of hearing bit was i'm glad to see that back and the uh howard hughes will thing this wasn't a good episode for anyone really but but garrett was uh was on form i'm gonna say garrett as well everything i saw him in i i enjoyed i enjoyed him in everything this episode so for me he was the most consistent he was the most solid that's a clean sweep three for three return of the deaf guy not the deaf guy but the helping uh <laughs> the, the return of the uh the deaf broad broadcaster for the deaf uh the uh, the bad will, the whores. Yeah, he was uh, he was landing all night. Mm -hmm. Was Lorraine the only other option for you guys? Yeah, yeah Lo Lorraine was a close second, I would say. Yeah, always love Gilda and Aykroyd. Yeah, I, I did enjoy Lorraine in a lot of most of hers. Yeah. Overall, uh, what a mess. I'm sort of putting this one mainly at the feet of the writers. Nothing to me was clever. Nothing was funny. It seemed that the performers were all doing what they were supposed to do with their usual energy, but the premises were weak. Some felt rehashed, and there was a lot of cringeworthy stuff tonight. Canon, in her favor, was integrated, did a lot of sketches, but really left no mark. I'm wondering how much the technical glitches are hurting. The big ones in Update were handled well by Chevy, 
But uh, the Johnny Angel sketch, which I didn't like, was definitely hampered by bad sound. The music just didn't do it for me. The Weiss film was better than the last few, but not where the uh, first bunch were. Hubcap Thief was fun, but uh, not perfect. To me, this was the worst episode so far this year. It was nothing great, very little good, and a lot bad. I'm giving this one a 3 out of 10. Very weird episode. Uh, some very dark sketches I mentioned throughout that uh, I do like when they do dark things, but I thought that was just a lot of weird humor tonight. Uh, the musical guest, I can't put it better than you did, Keith. Just really a non-entity. I thought the host was fine, maybe having a little too much fun. I did appreciate the chances they took. The film was a little weird. I didn't like the whole movie. You know what? Overall, I got I got to go pretty middle of the road with this. I'm going to go five. Five out of ten. Yeah, no, I think that's being generous, Matt. I think you're uh, in a kind mood tonight. This was a slog for me. It was a tough watch. I kind of agree with Matt that I like the chances that they took on stuff, but I, it was just weird. The whole thing was just kind of weird. It didn't really land. The musical guest, it was okay. Diane Cannon did absolutely nothing for me. I didn't really find myself laughing much which for a comedy hour, I would like to do a little more of that. I'm going to give it a 2.5. Congratulations, Heather. That is the lowest score anyone has ever given an episode. Really? And I think it's deserved. (laughs) Yeah. So with my three, Matt's five, and Heather's 2.5, we averaged this one out as a 3.5. And the folks over at IMDb gave it a 6.4. So we're way off the exchange rate here, Matt. We as a group, dislike this way more than the uh, general populace does. Not really surprised. Strange Mm -hmm. episode. Mm -hmm. Tough to like, uh, but I didn't hate it. One other person that might not like this episode is Lauren Michaels, as uh, as NBC did not rerun this episode in any way, shape, or form until 1999. (laughs) Holy cow. Wow. Yeah, some of the subject matter, I think, wouldn't have played well even five, uh, even at the time. But uh, but five years later, six years later, might have been a bit much. This one is ranked as the 21st best episode of the uh, first season or the third worst episode of the first season. So, Heather, thank you very much for joining us tonight. And hopefully we can have you back for an episode you enjoy a little bit more. I would love that. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And yeah, I would definitely. like to enjoy an episode next time (laughs) you'd like to laugh at this comedy uh legendary legendary comedy show yeah yeah i can dig it our next episode will be episode 21 featuring the host buck henry and a musical guest gordon lightfoot and sean who joined us for anthony perkins will be will be joining us for for that one so uh it'll be great to have sean back and uh, to see buck henry again and uh, gordon lightfoot's always a treat for me Matt, how are you feeling about having Buck Henry, Gordon Lightfoot, and Sean next time? Very excited for all three across the board. Should be a great episode. Uh, So from myself and Heather and Matt, thank you very much for joining us. We'll be posting our next episode in about a week. Please, if you're enjoying what we're up to, subscribe, like, share, tell your friends. But until then, we'll be wondering how much darker things can get here in S.N. Hell.